You are now listening to The Model Health Show with Sean Stevenson. For more, visit themodelhealthshow.com. Welcome to The Model Health Show. This is fitness and nutrition expert Sean Stevenson, and I'm so grateful for you tuning in with me today. What happens in the gut does not stay in the gut. This is something we're learning about more and more today, that our health truly is, many of our health outcomes, outpicturing of skin issues, of blood sugar issues, of joint issues, the list goes on and on and on, are highly connected to what's happening with our microbiome. The health of our gut is of the utmost importance. And on this episode, we're going to dive in with one of the experts in this field and talk about what it takes to have a super gut. And as you'll see today, we have the opposite. The average person today is experiencing a long list of hidden health issues related to gut health that you're going to find out about today. So again, we might have outpicturings of symptoms like rosacea, of arthritis, of blood sugar dysregulation, of obesity, and not really be looking at the underlying cause, which according to a study published in the Annals of the New York Academy of Sciences, for example, has found that inflammation in the gut can create inflammation in our brain, all right? Something that they dubbed hypothalamic inflammation specifically, and the hypothalamus is a master regulator of your metabolism, of your entire body. It's known as a master gland that's taking kind of a, a presidential role over your other glands, right? So thyroid has to check in with the big guy upstairs, the hypothalamus. Adrenals, big guy upstairs. Hypothalamus, the hypothalamus is of the utmost importance. But who's talking about the fact that your brain and your metabolism can get thrown off because of inflammation happening elsewhere in your body, namely what's happening in your gut? So again, this is gonna be packed with so many powerful insights, game-changing ideas and tips and strategies and things for us to start to literally just even starting out growing better humans because we're even gonna talk about how a lot of this is beginning from the moment that we arrive here on the planet. And again, this is one of the foremost experts in this topic and also one of my favorite teachers of all time. So really pumped about this, but we've got to address this from multiple dimensions. Obviously, our nutrition is paramount and we're talking about gut health because that's what we're feeding our microbes, whether it's the good stuff or the not so good stuff. But other lifestyle factors and environmental factors heavily influence what's happening with our microbiome. We've talked about this on many episodes of the Model Health Show, whether it's stress, whether it's sleep deprivation, whether it's environmental toxins, you know, these toxicants, the list goes on and on. Our exercise habits, we've got sound science on how exercise influences the health of our microbes. And with all of that, still, one of the things that has kind of the greatest touch point or the most logical touch point for people to improve their microbial health and the health of their gut is through our nutrition because it's like taking something from the external world and putting it into our internal environment so it's more of like a proactive thing that we can see because with stress damaging our gut health and you know people might think about how stress can induce the presence of ulcers for example right that's kind of a well-known moniker in modern lexicon and science but we're not truly understanding how something like that takes place because stress is invisible, right? So stress can create damage to your gut health, but you can't see it. You could see flaming hot Cheetos, all right? You could see 
uh, an avocado. You can see, you know, fill in the blank. You could see this external food that we put in there, but we don't understand how stress that we're putting into our system is affecting our gut health, right? And a lot of that, even though it might be environmentally induced, it's still based on our perception. And our minds are so powerful in crafting the outcomes of our health. And I want to keep putting that empowerment into your hand. But today, more than ever, we've got to take back control of our thinking and what we're associating with and our perspective about things. But of course, we want to add to our superhero utility belt with supreme nutrient inputs as well to stack conditions in our favor. One of the things we're going to highlight today a little bit is the necessity of prebiotics. So prebiotics are what our probiotics or friendly flora are required to have in order for them to proliferate, in order for them to stay in place and to help to maintain a healthy bacterial balance. And if we're not providing our bodies with the right types of prebiotic, the microbes that we want are simply not going to stick around. We could take the most fanciest, pantsiest probiotic ever concocted. But if we're not giving these microbes their preferred food source, they can't stick around. It's basically like subjecting them to starvation. They're just going to wither away and die. They're going to leave your system. We have to provide the prebiotics for the probiotics to make postbiotics. So postbiotics, these are the vitamins, minerals, nutrients, short-chain fatty acids, all the stuff that these microbes, this symbiotic relationship, make in us for us. Right? So we need a, a variety of prebiotics. And I love the fact that today we have these superfood concentrates like the Organifi green juice because it's a plethora of different types of plant fibers that this is one of the angles that's not talked about enough that helps to support our microbial health. And now, yes, now we actually, as many people know who've been utilizing Organifi, it has this minty goodness, this minty refreshing aspect to it. But I got a little secret for you. Right now, just release, I just got it, is the green juice formula, Crisp Apple. All right, this is taking me back in the day to Jolly Rancher vibes, all right? Now, this was the far less healthy version of Sean Stevenson, all right? I was struggling out there. All right, but those Jolly Ranchers, all the little treats, those flavor notes, it just is kind of reminiscent of that for me. And something, again, to add into our repertoire to provide these nutrients for our kids. And again, in a way that we're getting in these powerful, and I want to share this with you because I don't mention this enough as well. We mentioned how inflammation or damage to the gut can create inflammation in the brain. Well, what can we do to supplant this issue? What can we do to help to turn this around? Well, data that was published in PLOS One, the Public Library of Science One, revealed that spirulina, spirulina has a potential to one, improve neurogenesis in the brain, creating new brain cells, and two, reduce neuroinflammation. Flaming Hot Cheetos do the opposite. They're flaming hot. But now we know that spirulina has the potential to help to reduce brain inflammation. Wow, really, really impressive. And this is one of the hallmark ingredients. We've got moringa, we've got spirulina, we've got chlorella, we've got ashwagandha. So we're getting all this variety of prebiotic fibers in addition to the powerhouse nutrients that are already in these superfood concentrates. So head over there, check them out right now. Crisp Apple is now available. Go to organifi.com forward slash model. That's O-R-G-A-N-I-F-I. 
Organifi.com forward slash model. Guess what? You get 20% off as well. All right, go to Organifi.com forward slash model for 20% off. Now let's get to the Apple Podcast Review of the Week. Another five-star review titled The Gold Standard by Courtney Renee 41 I really don't have the words to fully express my gratitude for Sean and this podcast. I can't imagine the time, effort, and care that he pours into each episode. They're so thoughtfully put together, and the information is so well-sourced. You are an absolute gift to this world, Sean. And from the bottom of my heart, thank you. Wow, thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you for taking the time to share your heart over on Apple Podcasts. It really does mean a lot. And you just energize me even more. I'm ready to do this. Thank you to everybody who's popping over to Apple Podcasts and leaving a review for the Model Health Show. Without any further ado, let's get to our special guest and topic of the day. Our guest today is Dr. William Davis, and he's the author of the mega hit New York Times bestselling book, international bestseller, Weed Belly, and also his remarkable book, Undoctors, one of my favorite books of all time in the health space as well. And he's been somebody who's been for a couple of decades now really working behind the scenes to help to educate his patients and the public about real health principles so we can help to remove our existing symptoms by addressing the root causes of our conditions. And now he's shifted his focus and education to everybody with his new book, Super Gut. So let's talk about this important topic with the one and only Dr. William Davis. Let's just be honest. Let's just get it out there for everybody. You're the forefather in this identification of wheat being an issue. You know, like you had the first book to really explode and just make a big impact. And so I want to thank you for that. And you've had a big influence on my thinking as well. Wow. Thanks for saying so. I appreciate that. Yeah. It's totally my honor. And of course, like we're just now rekindling things and realizing you lived in the same area that I lived in St. Louis at the Ball Winchester Field area. And also you went to slew (laughs) bananas, bananas. So really, really grateful to to jump in and talk about this new project that you got here. Let me go ahead and whip it out. It took all my strength to lift it because it's so heavy with information. And Bill, listen, I'm I'm not exaggerating the slightest. I couldn't go more than a paragraph and not highlight something. Mm. You're one of my favorite writers as well. You know, you have a great way with words. And as you know, you know, in conventional science today, what tends to happen is an an overcomplication of very simple principles to try and sound smart. And, you know, Einstein said something, and I'm just going to paraphrase something along the lines of, if you don't know it well enough, if you can't explain it simply, you don't know it well enough. You know, and so you explain things super simple, but fun and funny as hell. And well, the new you, book Sean. is super, and you know, of course, the new book is Super Gut, a four-week plan to reprogram your microbiome, restore health, and lose weight. Super Gut. I'm a big fan of superheroes and gut health. So this was perfect for me. So what was the inspiration behind you doing this book right now? Oddly, it was stumbling on a conversation, some scientific studies out of Massachusetts Institute of Technology, MIT. And between 2013, and I promise this won't get dry in scientific, Sean. So, so between 2013 and 2017, this cancer group, who was looking at the properties of a specific microbe, Lactobacillus reuteri, R-E-U-T-E-R-I, named after the German microbiologist who discovered it in human breast milk in 1962, 
Well, they did this series of studies with this microbe looking for anti-cancer effects because there's preliminary evidence that it uh, can eradicate uh, colon cancer cells. But they noticed that the mice developed, as they called it, rich, luxuriant fur <laughs> within a week. So they explored the skin effects and they saw that the animals had healing time from skin wounds cut by 50%, marked acceleration Sorry. of healing. They also saw that the animals tended not to get old. They stayed young, they mated, they played with each other, had rich fur, and stayed thin, even if they were given an, uh, a diet made, to, made them, that would have made them fat. So there was a youth-preserving effect also. The surprising thing was they just said, here you go, isn't this interesting? Do with it what you will. So I got that same strain of microbes. It's actually made as a commercial product by a company called BioGaia in Sweden, and they sell it as a product called Gastrus, G-A-S-T-R-U-S. And But the problem with it is it was intended for infants. So the number of microbes is really low, kind of trivial for adults, 100 million of two strands. Sounds like a lot, but in microbes, it's almost nothing. So I made yogurt out of it. Not yogurt in the conventional sense. It's not really yogurt because you, the FDA has strict uh, rules, regulations on what you can call yogurt, but I'm not selling anything. So I call it yogurt because it looks and smells like yogurt, but it's not yogurt. But, but it's a way to amplify bacterial counts. And when you make the yogurt the way I, that I learned how to do this, we use prolonged fermentation, Sean. You know, if you go to the grocery store and you buy commercial yogurt, they allow it to ferment. That's how you microbes double. Um, they allow it to ferment, ferment for four hours. Well, Rotary doubles. You know, they don't, there's no mommy and daddy microbes, of course. They have something called asexual reproduction. One becomes two, two becomes four. Well, Rotary doubles every three hours. So if you ferment in a factory for four hours, and that's what they typically do, you've got nothing. So I fermented for 36 hours, allowed the microbe to double 12 times. Do you remember the kid's riddle? Which would you rather have, a million dollars or a penny that doubles every day for 30 days? And you saw this in the book, of course. Well, kids always pick a million dollars, not recognizing that that penny becomes over five and a half million dollars. So the same kind of thing here. If you allow the microbe to double over and over and over, in this case, 12 times, you get about 250 billion. So a thousand fold more than the original tablets. So me, I started consuming this and hundreds, now thousands of people started consuming it. And Sean, all the stuff we saw that was seen by the MIT group in mice played out in humans. Uh, I'm a chronic insomniac. I now sleep straight through nine hours. I gained 13 pounds of muscle in three weeks at age 63 at the time. <laughs> uh, ladies love it because they get smoother skin from an explosion in dermal collagen. And interestingly, so we know from those elegant studies that a lot of the effects are because rotary takes up residence in your upper GI tract, which is kind of unusual also, sends a signal through the vagus nerve to the hypothalamus to release the hormone oxytocin. So I bet a lot of your listeners know that oxytocin is the hormone of love and empathy. And that's what happens. People say, I like my spouse better. It's rekindled my love. I like my children better. They're less annoying. I like my coworkers better. And one of my favorites, I see other people's points of view better. And so we have this, and, but it got me thinking, if this one microbe, Sean, can do all that, 
And by the way, one of the reasons why it works so spectacularly is because almost all of us have lost this microbe. So when Dr. Reuter first found it in breast milk, he had no problem finding it in stool, breast milk, etc. He found over his ensuing 30 years of his career, it was increasingly difficult to find. And then towards the end of his career, he passed recently. Uh, he couldn't find almost hardly at all. And that's been true in, in, in other studies as well. You can't find it anymore because it's so susceptible to common antibiotics like amoxicillin or ampicillin. So people have lost, we restore it, and we get all these incredible effects. But that led me to believe, well, gee, if that's one microbe, Sean, what about a whole bunch of other microbes? And that's, what's, that's what Super Gut became about. Let's find those microbes. Let's replace them. In this case, let's ferment them. It doesn't have to be dairy. It could be other things too. But we ferment them very high counts and you get these extraordinary effects. Wow, this is incredible. And there's so much to unpack here as well. You know, So I want to start with how do we get in this state in the first place? Because as you mentioned, a lot of these microbes are becoming, they're on the endangered species list. We'll put it like that. And some have become extinct from the human microbiome. I wish and I thought of you, that. I'm going I'm to use that, Sean. <laughs> you're welcome. You're welcome. We, we've talked about so many different, uh, so many paralleling things in our, in our most recent books. And one of the things we'll talk about, of course, is our lack of compassion and empathy and this increased divisiveness, like epidemic divisiveness that we're seeing right now. We're not t talking about the underlying real issues of this, and which is being physically and mentally able to invoke those capacities, you know, like everybody has the capacity to do it, but it's harder when you're not well. So we're going to talk about that. But how, how did we get into this state? You talk about it, you say, you call it a Franken belly. Mm. How do we get into this state to where we're missing so many of these important microbes? You know, sadly, Sean, it's a long list, but it starts with overexposure to antibiotics. You know, those of us who are 40 years, by the time most people reach age 40, the average person has taken 30 courses of antibiotics. There's a huge, and even the CDC tells us that about half of those are inappropriate, unnecessary. So that's one big factor. But then there's a whole long list of other factors that are disruptive. Other drugs, like stomach acid blocking drugs, when you remove the acid barrier in the stomach, stool microbes, stool microbes, Sean, ascend from the colon into your small bowel. Uh, other drugs, statin cholesterol drugs disrupt the microbiome. Emulsifying agents like polysorbate 80 in peanut butter, salad dressings, and ice cream. Ice cream is a terrible product for these, <laughs> these emulsifying agents. Um, synthetic sweeteners like aspartame and sucralose in diet colas, they disrupt the microbiome. Chlorinated drinking water, stress. <laughs> uh, Glyphosate, you know, glyphosate's an herbicide, the active ingredient in uh, Roundup, but it's also an antibiotic, very potent antibiotic. Herbicide pesticide residues in food. In other words, it's virtually impossible now to avoid the many factors in modern life that uh, may, uh, introduce changes in the microbiome composition. And of course, one of the consequences, uh, along with Reuteri, we've lost hundreds of species. That, and many of which, maybe not all, but many of which performed important functions for, for humans. Mm. So how do we know that we've lost all of these microbes? Are we like looking at old mummy, mummified microbiomes? How do we, how do we know this? 
It comes kind of from indirect studies. There is some uh, uh, data from you know the 60s and 70s of the presence of microbes, though they use culture methods. And right now, no one uses culture methods for, for these purposes. We use DNA methods, and it's opened up a whole new world, a universe of microbes. But it's clear that a lot of the microbes, like the Roy Wright, that were culturable back in the 60s and 70s, are now lacking, are now gone. So that's indirect evidence. Uh, another piece of evidence is uh, comparing our microbiomes to the m- microbiomes of the few remaining indigenous populations, like the Yanomami in the Brazilian rainforest, the Matsas in Peru, the Malawi in Eastern Africa, the uh, Maasai in Kenya, the um, Hadza in Tanzania, the Mori in New Zealand, some of the isolated tribes in New Guinea. Well, when they, they're microbiomes have been sequenced, lo and behold, they have far more bacteria than we have. They have many species we lack. And by the way, we also have a few species they don't have. Now, does that mean that you and I should have the microbiome of, uh, of a primitive, uh, of an indigenous? It's not clear just how far we take that, but it is clear. Now, the odd thing about all those studies of the indigenous microbiomes is that while they're very different from us, they all resemble each other very closely, almost complete duplication, even though these populations are living on different continents and, of course, had no contact with each other. So that's interpreted by the microbiology community to mean that that must be the so-called Stone Age uh, microbiome, representing the stuff that humans had before all modern factors entered the picture. Mm, wow. I want to circle back a little bit to... How, how we got into this place where we have these Frankenbellies for the average uh, Westerners, especially. And you mentioned glyphosate and also pesticides, herbicides, rodenticides, all of these chemicals that are now commonplace. Grown, our food is grown with them. You know, it's just like we think we can wash off, you know, our apple and not understanding that it's built into the matrix of these things, specifically with a topic that you really brought to the forefront, which is wheat. And also understanding the wheat that we're eating today is not the biblical picture of wheat. You know, it's this genetically modified dwarf wheat that you really highlighted. But also these chemicals are necessary. Like, I don't think this stuff can even survive without, you know, these chemicals. Can you talk a little bit about that? Because I think that's one of the biggest issues with our gut health today, because it's a big part of the average American's diet. Mm -hmm. You're exactly right, Sean. A lot of modern crops grown on large-scale so-called monocultures can't grow without human input of fertilizers, herbicides, pesticides. Of course, genetically modified corn and soy, which is virtually all corn and soy now, uh, needs uh, glyphosate uh, and, and BT toxin. and that Those are instilled into the plant. And so it obliges the farmer to you know spray the stink out of his corn with glyphosate. And so it's it's... And that's a sad thing because virtually all of us now have glyphosate residues detectable in our skin, hair, urine, blood. It's in the water. It's in the air. It's everywhere. And so it's becoming increasingly difficult. So I wish there was a way for you and I to somehow shield ourselves from all these things. But it's it's a work in progress. We don't know how to get rid of these things. And if, and if you did have, of course, we do all have detectable levels of, res, of glyphosate, how do you get rid of it? By the way, there's emerging science. There may be a microbe that digests glyphosate and turns it into benign um, metabolites. So that, that is one of the really interesting, though, very um, 
early areas of uh, microbiome research that microbes can consume glyphosate, can bind cadmium and mercury, and you poop it out. <laughs> so there may be, because we have no real solutions for these horrible societal problems, but there may be some emerging solutions from the microbiome where you could just get this, this or that microbe, and maybe that would be, so that's it's preliminary, but it could be very interesting. Wow. Life finds a way, you know, and this is the thing too, you know, we're, we understand that the, the human body is incredibly resilient and it's always finding creative ways to adapt. Even the, the manifestation, what we term a disease is an adaptation by the human body to function under abnormal conditions. You know, even if, you know, the epidemic of type two diabetes, it's not that this particular issue, like your body's trying to take you out, your body's adapting to keep you alive and to perform under unideal conditions, which in this case, of course, is abnormal blood sugar just being bombarded in the body trying to sort that out. And so looking at it through that lens, and then we start to understand, yes, life finds a way. Our microbiome could be the solution to dealing with the environmental inputs that are so, we're, we're we are so immersed in abnormal environmental conditions, but we think we're so evolved, but it's only been a few decades that we've been living like this, you know? And so I, it's, it's very encouraging, but at the same time, we don't have to make things harder for ourselves. And so I want to ask you about this because a lot of the issues that we see on the surface, you know, from a conventional medical perspective, you know, whether it's rosacea, whether it's migraines, whether it's, you know, the list goes on and on and on. All these issues that are at epidemic proportions, asthma, allergies, diabetes, many of these conditions now we're we've got really, really sound data links back to our gut health. So could you talk a little bit about this? Because I think that we tend to still in our society think gut health just means like bellyache. My belly's hurting. <laughs> Not understanding that we can have outward symptoms ranging of a whole different list of things that are occurring today that are traced back to damage to our gut. Absolutely, Sean. So uh, like we mentioned, We've lost hundreds of microbes, like Rotori and many others. Now, they were good for us. They kind of acted as police cops, you know, traffic cops in your GI tract. But when you lose them, chaos <laughs> ensues. And one of the odd things is that microbes in the colon, these are stool microbes like E. coli and Klebsiella and Citrobacter, proliferate. They're allowed to proliferate when all those good guys are gone. And then they ascend up into the ileum, jejunum, duodenum, and stomach so that you have 24 additional feet of microbes, many of them stool microbes. So I, I call this the fecalization of America. <laughs> and I call it that because uh, I was talking to some radiologist friends and they remarked that, you know, there's, when they do a CT scan of the abdomen with uh, oral contrast so they can see the inner contours of the, uh, of the bowel, in the last few years, they've seen an explosion, including in young people, of what's called fecalization of the small bowel. That is, feces in the colon has a very characteristic appearance on a CT scan. They're now seeing it way up in the small bowel, fecalization. And that's what's happened. Fecal microbes and other bad guys have ascended so that, so that it all adds up, Sean, to 30 feet of unhealthy microbes. Now, these guys don't live for decades. They live for hours to days at most. So there's rapid turnover of trillions of microbes. Well, when they die, they release their breakdown products, the debris, some of which enters the bloodstream. Now, 
A lot of uh, integrative health and functional medicine doctors for years have been talking about gut leak. Well, it's finally been validated scientifically, but it's called endotoxemia. And that is, so 30 feet, trillions of microbes, rapid turnover, some of their breakdown products enter the bloodstream. But that tells us now with confidence how the, the microbes in the GI tract can export their effects, say, to the skin as rosacea or psoriasis or eczema, or to joints as a fibromyalgia or rheumatoid arthritis, or to the brain as depression. That's a big one, Sean. Uh, or Alzheimer's dementia or Parkinson's disease, or to the prostate or to the breast tissue. In other words, every organ is influenced by this bacterial process called endotoxemia. And it's so broad and so uh, a powerful effect that it means that virtually all modern diseases have to be re-examined in light of this phenomenon. This is, this is knuck and futz. This is, this is, it's such a big issue, you know, and it's, and, and I love that you highlighted this very early in the book. You talk about, you know, we have so much, what appears to be on the surface, unprecedented medical advancements, but yet we're seeing simultaneously the greatest epidemics of chronic diseases ever recorded in human history, mm -hmm. you know? And part of this is something you talk about. Unfortunately, the medical community is poorly equipped to handle the ailments resulting from a disturbed microbiome and never mind understanding their source. And that's a direct quote from the book. And so like, again, we're, what happens when somebody's coming in with, we'll just say asthma or eczema, like my sister, my, my little brother and I had asthma, my little sister mm -hmm. had eczema. We're coming in, they're thinking nothing about our microbiome. Treat the symptom, take this inhaler or put this cream on your, on your rash that never goes away. Can you talk about like what people are experiencing versus what we need to be looking at? So you, you hit it right on the head. So if you have, for instance, fibromyalgia, and it hurts just to move, can't ride your bike, can't do the laundry, can't wash the dishes, that's a problem. So what does the doctor do? Well, he's got a drug. It could be very expensive too. It could cost you thousands of dollars a month to block a step in the inflammatory pathway like TNF-alpha. Well, if that fibromyalgia was caused by disrupted microbiome, when you block that pathway, you've done nothing for the disrupted microbiome. And, and um, that disrupted microbiome that's not corrected will lead over time to autoimmune diseases, uh, ulcerative colitis, Crohn's disease, irritable bowel syndrome, uh, neurological impairment. In other words, it has colon cancer, diverticular disease. So not addressing the cause leaves you open to all kinds of health. And as you point out, that's what's happening. This is exactly what's playing out. In, in the big world, that people are developing three, four, seven, eight health conditions, and the doctor has a, a collection of drugs for each and every one of them, but never once. <laughs> and you see it, but my colleagues typically don't see it. They don't see the cause. But if you address the cause, all kinds of great stuff happens. You can break weight loss plateaus. You can reverse fatty liver. You can get rid of rheumatoid arthritis or polymyalgia rheumatica or or fibromyalgia. Uh, you can impact neurodegenerative conditions. Big effect on depression, by the way, and anxiety. So you can have all kinds of spectacular results. And because it takes doctors, mainstream doctors, I'm generalizing, of course, there are some very excellent chiropractors and functional medicine doctors, 
but the mainstream MDs typically takes them up to 20 years to catch up. Well, you know, if you got ulcerative colitis and psoriasis, you don't have 20 years. Yeah, people are, you know, they're in suffering. And that's a, this a thing too, and you know this too. We just want to get out of pain, you know, and oftentimes we'll do whatever it takes, whatever, especially if somebody's in a position of authority and trust, we'll just do what they say because we want to get a solution. And what tends to happen, of course, we get into that virtual hamster wheel where we're not addressing the root cause and continuing to treat these symptoms. And then something else pops over here. And I really feel this just the intelligence of the body, not addressing the thing. It's just going to manifest. It's kind of like trying to plug up a hole in a boat, you know, and then another hole pops up and, you know, you keep plugging them up instead of getting rid of the, the villain who's under the boat poking the holes in it, if that makes sense, you know. Good analogy, know Sean. Yeah. I'm thinking about this. I was literally picturing like a uh, chipmunk scenario, you know, uh, Chippendale and Donald Duck. All right. That's what I was picturing. And I was picturing that because of your book. And you mentioned something that a lot of folks don't mention, which is, and I know you're like, where the hell is he going with this Chippendale? So you mentioned that every single creature on planet Earth has their own unique microbiome. Talk a little bit about that. Yeah, so we're, these are adaptations. You know, if, if you're a squirrel, you can climb trees a lot better than we can because we're not equipped to climb trees. So likewise, microbiome. The microbiome is, is crafted evolutionarily to adapt you to specific circumstances. And unfortunately, we've impacted our microbiomes in very maladaptive ways. And that's why we're seeing a, an explosion of disease. Uh, the, the issue is People often don't recognize, including doctors, don't recognize common conditions as an expression of a disrupted microbiome. They might not recognize, for instance, that their depression, unresponsive to the SSRI drugs, uh, they don't recognize that's a microbiome issue via endotoxemia. They might not recognize that their bad hip is really a problem with the microbiome or their enlarged prostate or their recurrent urinary tract infections or vaginitis or their migraine headaches. In other words, I really mean this, John, we, we have to re-examine everything in light of what's been going on in the, uh, in the human microbiome. Absolutely, absolutely. So again, whether it's a squirrel, whether it's a chipmunk, whether it's a spider, you know, and even this was the first time, Bill, that I really thought about like insects have their own unique microbiome. And each one of those insects, you know, the trillions and trillions and trillions of insects across the planet, have their own version of their microbiome is slightly different because it's unique. Just like us, there are no two humans ever in the history of humanity, even I even mentioned this in, in my latest book as well, identical twins looking at their microbiomes. A lot of the work was actually done in St. Louis. So coming out of SLU, great database of identical twins and looking at their different health outcomes from different environmental inputs. But one of those big things is that you, it's kind of like a fingerprint. You know, you have a unique microbial fingerprint, each and every one of us. And so it's really remarkable. But at the same time, we can understand, like you talked about this earlier, whether it's, you know, a culture here we've got in Kenya or the Hadza, whatever it might be, they actually have, who's living more of an indigenous, like closer to their indigenous roots, their microbiomes are strangely similar, even if they're across the world on the other side of the planet, versus... The modern American, which one of the things I saw back in the day, I think it was out of Stanford, but we're seeing like four times more microbial diversity, four to 10 times more in somebody who is living more of a quote hunter gatherer 
type protocol, you know? So it's very strange how we're kind of devolving in a sense. Mm -hmm. But as you mentioned earlier, you know, kind of alluding to life finds a way. And I want to ask you about this specifically and to dig in a little more here because it's so prevalent. And yet it's, it's, this is our opportunity right now to put this front of mind for everybody listening and watching, which is these epidemics of SIBO mm -hmm. and CIFO as well. Can you talk about those? Yeah. So as we lose these healthy microbes and we have proliferation of unhealthy, mostly stool species, the 30 feet, that's called, that's exactly right, small intestinal bacterial overgrowth. A parallel situation can also emerge uh, with fungal species like Candida albicans, Candida glabrata, Candida tropicalis. Likewise, just, you know, just uh, it, all it takes is, you know, th too many margaritas on your uh all-inclusive vacation for three days, and it gives you irritable bowel syndrome, fungal overgrowth. And so these things are everywhere. You know, I did a simple little exercise, Sean. I just went back to all the studies, studies like this. What proportion of people with irritable bowel syndrome have SIBO? There's a way to test it. You can test for hydrogen gas in the breath because microbes produce hydrogen gas. Well, of the 60 to 70 million people in the U.S. with irritable bowel syndrome, it varies from study to study, but on average, about 44% have SIBO. So that alone is about 20 to 30 million people. If 50% of people with uh, obesity have uh, SIBO, that's another 15 or 20 million people. If, the, uh, if people with fatty liver, at least 50% have, have um, SIBO. And that's another about 75 million. Well, you know, there's overlap among these groups, you know, an overweight type 2 diabetic with fatty liver. But when you add up the numbers, you'll see that we easily, easily and conservatively can estimate that over 100 million Americans have this problem called SIBO. And Sean, I was very skeptical at first. I thought, no, that's an unusual thing. But one of the things that happened beyond those studies is there's a new consumer device called the AIR device, A-I-R-E. I have no relationship with the company except that the inventor, Dr. Angus Short, is now a friend. And he, he invented this for his fiance, then fiance, now wife, because she had irritable bowel syndrome and was told to go on a low FODMAPS diet, that low fiber, low sugar diet, because there's evidence to suggest people less bloating and diarrhea when they do that. Well, he saw how tough it was for her and how much she suffered when she slipped up. So he invented this little device, the air device and it registers hydrogen gas as a, uh, he thought as a reflection of undigested uh, fibers and sugars. And he releases the device around 2018, 2019. I get a hold of it and I called him up. I said, Angus, that's not what this is. <laughs> this is a mapping device. It shows you, if you, if you use it the right way, it shows you where in the GI tract microbes are living. So it tells you whether you have this 30 feet of microbe issue, the SIBO. Not, not CIFO, unfortunately, is no such consumer device for, for fungal overgrowth yet. But I, I talked about this, and then hundreds, now thousands of people, and it's in the Super Gut Book too, uh, are using this device. And lo and behold, Sean, it's everywhere. Now, you might say, well, maybe the, the technology or the device is flawed, except that people will test positive, zero to 10, 10 is terrible. And they take some step to eradicate the SIBO. And we can talk about that too, because I think there's a new way to do that. And then they test maybe 1.2 normal level. And they say, you know what? I got rid of the hydrogen gas in my breath by the air device and my depression finally lifted. 
my weight loss plateau finally broke. My hemoglobin A1C that was stuck finally dropped to ideal or normal. My, uh, my migraine headaches finally went away. My joint pain finally went away. In other words, we're seeing a spectacular health effect. We're seeing people lose their food intolerances, Sean. All those people who say, oh, I can't eat FODMAPs, can't eat nightshades, can't eat histamine-containing foods, can't eat fruit, can't eat legumes, can't, all that stuff goes away in the vast majority of people. They say, for the first time in years, I can eat tomatoes and not get joint pain, asthma, um, leg swelling, <laughs> depression, anxiety, etc. So all that's going away. Now, the, the difficulty is, how do you get there? How do you correct this, this SIBO issue? Well, the conventional thinking is you take an antibiotic, which I'm a little reluctant to suggest because antibiotics got us here. But there is an antibiotic called Rifaximin or Zyfaxin. It's not very effective. Um, it's about maybe 40, 50% effective. And I think that's an exaggeration. It's probably more like 25% effective. Very expensive, not covered by insurance. And of course, the gastroenterologist, even if he, he or she even knows what SIBO is, uh, won't tell you how you got it, won't tell you how to increase the efficacy, won't tell you how to prevent the common recurrences. There are herbal antibiotic regimens, only two of which have had e evidence for efficacy, the candibactin and the fc solid dysbiocide regimen. This is all in, in the Supergut book. But I, I, I asked a bunch of different questions, Sean. I asked, well, if you take a conventional commercial probiotic for SIBO, will it get rid of the SIBO? No. It might reduce bloating a little bit or maybe reduce diarrhea, but it won't get rid of the 30 feet of, of overproliferated stool microbes. So I asked different questions. I asked, what if we chose species that colonize the upper GI tract? That's where SIBO occurs. What if we chose microbes that produce what are called bacteriocins? These are natural antibiotics that some microbes produce effective against stool microbes. So I chose three, a strain of lactobacillus gasseri, colonized upper GI tract, bacteriocin powerhouse, showing up to seven bacteriocins. Our good friend, Rotori, lactobacillus rotori, colonized the upper GI tract, produces up to four very potent bactericins. And then another one, Bacillus coagulans, only produces one, but there's good evidence it reduces irritable bowel syndrome symptoms. Irritable bowel is essentially synonymous with SIBO. We make a yogurt, prolonged fermentation for really big microbial counts, consume a half cut, a cup per day. Now, I'm crossing my fingers, Sean. So far, about 30 people who've done this have normalized their breath hydrogen gas using yogurt. So I'm we will look at this more formally in a clinical trial down the road. Uh, we, won't, we can't do it as yogurt in a clinical trial. It's got to be an encapsulated probiotic. But I think we've stumbled on a way to eradicate SIBO using a much softer method of, in this case, making yogurt. You know, if I told you you needed a frontal lobotomy <laughs> or a colon removal colectomy, you better be damn confident, right, of your evidence. Well, what if the solution is yogurt? Right? And not the stuff at the store. That's something different. I'm, I'm wrongly calling it yogurt, but this, what I call SIBO yogurt, if that's a solution, well, that's a very soft, friendly solution. Yeah. yeah you don't say. I mean, man, the, the alternative, and as you mentioned, you know, I've got many friends who are gastroenterologists and, you know, award-winning, the whole thing, top schools, and they've shared with me consistently that they're simply not taught about these things in medical mm -hmm. school. If they happen to stumble upon it, it's like a miracle, you know? And so they're literally training to treat 
the organs responsible for the digestion, assimilation, and elimination of food, but they don't know anything about food. Like they're taught such a, and matter of fact, the small amount that they might get is misinformation. You know, it's really poor education based off of principles that don't, again, like many, many of our citizens have tried these things. When I went to my conventional college, I was taught about the food pyramid, you know, at that time. And it's just not borne out very, very good results. And I could see it. My teacher was not well, you know, I could see it. And so, you know, we have this issue where we have very, very smart people who are trained to do the wrong thing. And so they become very, very good at doing the wrong thing and or missing the right thing. And so this is why your work is so important because it, it has this way of trickling down and like changing culture. Like Wheat Belly changed the conversation so much. So I'm really excited about this because it's just getting this message out in a bigger way. Now I wanna ask you about this because, so you mentioned bacteria that would normally, through our evolution, they would be hanging out in, in the colon. That's where they live. But they've found a way to go upstream, to basically try to crawl up the slide you know, I know there's some kids out there that have went, tried to go up the slide at the, at the playground. I've definitely done it. But, you know, if it's a really great slide, your ass is going to fall back down. Sidebar. Anyways, but they're, they're finding a way to go from these conditions to places in, in our gut where they're not supposed to be. And, and historically, we've only been able to look, you know, if we have a colonoscopy, for example, a small, we're talking a couple of feet of evaluation. And the same from the top down. When you just mentioned, you keep saying it's number 30, we got 30 feet. You know, there are all these feet in between that you're just not getting a peek at. And so my question is, how are these bacteria able, and I know you've touched on this a little bit, but I want to get specific, able to go from the colon upstream into places they're simply not supposed to be and start causing all these problems? It is pretty amazing when you think about it. These little microscopic creatures can climb 24 feet. That's like three stories of a building. But some of them are motile. They have uh, what I call flagella, little tails, like a tadpole, and they can swim. And so that's one presumed way they make it up. And probably just by virtue of proliferating, these microbes, of course, they, they uh, proliferate hi huge numbers very quickly. And so they just by sheer mass can climb up too. But it's not been all that thoroughly charted out. But it is. It is sobering to think that many of us and I think easily one in three, a hundred million people in this country alone have this process. And if you don't address it, it's going to get you in trouble long term. And if the solution could be a, at least a starting solution, not a full solution, perhaps long term, if the starting solution could be something as benign as, as a specific kind of yogurt with specific microbes in it, uh, you know, I'm, I'm crossing my fingers, John, that that remains true. But one of the most important things that your listeners could do is based on um, uh, an answer finally validated by the Sonnenbergs, husband and wife team, uh, Justin and Erica up at Stanford. And they did a very nice study comparing uh, what happens to people who consume a lot of fermented foods, like six, seven, eight servings a day. These are things like sauerkraut, fermented sauerkraut, kimchi, kefirs, yogurts, fermented meats. <clears throat> All the things that your grandmother, our great-grandmothers ate all the time and we've forgotten all about because of refrigeration. We, we think that fermented foods are rotten foods. They're not. Well, they showed that it's fermented foods that hands down are the thing that really 
helps restore order in your microbiome. But it, what the, one of the most interesting things they showed was that, so fermented food, let's say like kimchi. Kimchi, by the way, is an excellent fermented food. But it has species like Leuconostoc mesenteroides or Pediococcus pentasaceus. So it's got some really cool, very beneficial microbes. You eat that kimchi, they only stick around for maybe a few hours or days. They don't take up long-term residence, but they somehow, the presence of those fermenting microbes somehow encourages the proliferation of numerous healthy species. It's not quite clear how that happens. Are they latent <laughs> or are you more receptive to them from your dog and <laughs> surfaces? Nobody knows, but it is clear that these fermented foods that most of us have forgotten about are very, very powerful ways to rebuild your microbiome. Wow. So cool. So cool. Got a quick break coming up. We'll be right back. Our microbiome plays major roles in regulating our metabolism, literally playing a role in determining how many calories are absorbed from our food, for example. Our microbiome also controls so much about our mood, with the vast majority of our body's serotonin being produced in our gut. And our microbes interact with these enterochromaffin cells and enteroendocrine cells that produce our hormones and neurotransmitters in our bellies. And one of the biggest issues we're seeing today is gut dysbiosis, where friendly microbes are getting overrun by opportunistic bacteria. One of the few amazing sources of nutrition that's been found clinically to reverse gut dysbiosis is highlighted in a study published in the Journal of Agricultural and Food Chemistry. It discovered that the traditional fermented tea called pu'er may be able to reverse gut dysbiosis by dramatically reducing ratios of potentially harmful bacteria and increasing ratios of beneficial bacteria. Another peer-reviewed study published in the journal Nature Communications uncovered that a unique compound called Thea Brownin found in traditional fermented pu'er has remarkable effects on our microbiome as well. And the researchers found that theobrownin positively alters gut microbiota and directly reduces hepatic, aka liver fat, and reduces lipogenesis, which means the creation of fat. Pu'er is absolutely amazing on so many levels, and it's also a powerful adjunct to any fat loss protocol because it's been found to support fat loss while protecting muscle at the same time. And this was documented in a recent study featured in Clinical Interventions in Aging. Now the key is the source of the pu'er matters a lot. And the only pu'er that I drink uses a patented cold extraction technology that extracts the bioactive compounds in the tea at cold to low temperatures for up to eight hours. And this process gently extracts natural antioxidants and phytonutrients and preserves them in a whole bioavailable form. And this is the purest way to extract the phytonutrients for maximum efficacy. This pu'er is also wild harvested, making it even more concentrated in the polyphenols that we see having benefits in those clinical trials. Also, triple toxin screened for one of the highest levels of purity, tested for pesticides, heavy metals, and toxic molds, and making sure that it is not in your tea, which is common in most other teas. This is why I'm a massive fan of Peak Teas. Go to peaktea.com forward slash model. That's P-I-Q-U-E-T-E-A.com forward slash model. And you get 10% off their amazing fermented pu'er and all of their other incredible 
teas. These teas are in a league of their own. Their puer is amazing. I'm a huge fan of their ginger tea as well. Go to peaktea.com forward slash model. Again, you get 10% off everything that they carry. One of the best investments in your health, supporting your microbiome, supporting your metabolism. It is absolutely amazing. Head over to peaktea.com forward slash model. And now back to the show. So I've got to ask you about this. And this is one of the things that is super important for me personally, something that I've been contemplating about for years and having an opportunity to talk about and to write about, but to see that you're talking about this as well was just really, it just was the, the, the cherry on top of your book. And right now, as I mentioned at the top of the show, we're living at a time of unprecedented divisiveness. And unfortunately, you know, again, we all have the capacity to perspective take, to see from somebody else's point of view, to listen, but it seems like it's becoming increasingly more difficult. For people to just put their own attitudes and beliefs and, and, and even anger and um, you know, vitriol aside and listen to the person on the other side of an idea or perspective. And right now, I don't think that many people are attributing this lack of connection, which ironically, again, we're on paper, we look like the most connected society ever. But in reality, we're more separate than we've ever been and living virtually and not really connecting. And there's so much, even ugliness, just even when you go online. And so you, in this book, you're making the connection to our degradation of health of our microbiome as having a big role behind why people are not emotionally, cognitively as able to connect and to listen and to learn and to perspective take with other people. So can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, you know, you're exactly right, Sean. The composition of your intestinal microbiome is a major determinant of your internal dialogue. Whether your dialogue is one of hope and optimism and understanding or of hate and criticism. And, you know, the, I, I see this play out with, I don't want to overstate what one microbe, that is lactobacillus rotari can do, but I see just with that one microbe, Sean, people, as I said, like their families better, their co-workers better. They introduce themselves to strangers in line for coffee at Starbucks. <laughs> you, even if we disagree on something, they say, you know, you know what, I don't agree with your opinion, but you know, I understand how you could see that. I mean, very different kind of approach. There's a great couple of studies that were done in Germany recently, and I'm shocked that it was done, but uh, so that the endotoxin we talked about, that microbes release and get into your bloodstream, well, it's been known for years that people who don't respond to conventional antidepressants, uh, th this question has been asked, what, what's different about those people who don't seem to respond to anything and remain depressed, maybe suicidal? Well, it's been determined that they all have much greater measures of inflammation, C-reactive protein, IL-6, IL-1-beta, TNF-alpha, all those things. So, of course, big pharmacists, let's give them expensive anti-inflammatory drugs, which, of course, is stupid. But uh, uh, so a German group took that endotoxin from bacteria and injected it into normal, non-depressed people, which I always find surprising because there have been a handful of these kinds of studies. Because if you miscalculate the dose, you can kill somebody. It's very toxic, this endotoxin. So they do this, and normal people became profoundly depressed within three hours. And then MRIs of their brain showed all the hallmarks of depression. 
So, but it's a, it's an illustration, Sean, of the power of the microbiome in this case, endotoxemia, to influence what goes on in your in 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 your head. That is so crazy, so crazy and powerful. You know, um, one of the studies kind of affirming this. This was published in the journal Aggressive Behavior, which we, even when I say this, there's journals for everything. And so, but just a lot of people are not spending time thumbing through this stuff, but they were looking at the nutrition profile of prison inmates to see their behavior correlations based on their nutrient intake. And so they had a control group, you know, just kind of doing standard practice. Then they had the study group where they're giving additional nutrients to, you know, form of you know, omega-3 supplements, multivitamin, that kind of thing. And they saw that the folks who were receiving additional nutrition had like a 38% reduction in violent offenses, right? And so, of course, like this, this has been replicated. That particular study was based off of a study done by researchers at Oxford. And, you know, scientists were just like, that's not possible. You know, we've implemented all these different programs to get people to be more, you know, th their behavior change, all that stuff. We've got the best scientists on it. There's no way diet can just do something like that. So they replicated the study and essentially the same results. And so this really boils down to a very simple principle, which is when we're lacking the basic inputs that the human body needs, for, the human brain needs, just to function, all of a sudden, many different processes are going to be sacrificed. You know, your body could give a about you understanding someone else's perspective when it's just trying to, you know, keep your heart beating normally or just keep some brain cells firing and to keep you safe. And this is why what we see too, parallel with that, less activity in the prefrontal cortex, more activity in the hindbrain, you know, and more activity in the amygdala when we're sleep deprived, when we're nutrient deprived, when we're having disruption with our microbiome. And so this all ties together. And so what we're trying to do is to create healthy, sovereign human beings today. And again, I really appreciate you leading the charge in this. And so I want to ask you a little bit more about this topic of inflammation. All right. There's been other terms kicked around, inflammaging, you know, and just looking at, finally, this is getting some attention. And I think in your book, you even use a term like wildfires, and it just sparked all these different ideas for me. But just these conditions popping up in the body where if you really look at the breakdown of the word, we're talking about basically, you know, the, the activation of fire, like things are getting set aflame inside of our bodies, inside of our cells. And so I want to ask you, how can issues like, you know, systemic inflammation, as you mentioned earlier, being able to measure something like C-reactive protein, how, how does this resort back or, or connect to our gut health? How is inflammation part of the, the, I guess, the soil that inflammation is growing in have to do with our gut? So inflammation in the intestinal wall essentially opens up the normal barriers to stuff in your intestinal tract, especially that endotoxin. It's, it's called lipopolysaccharide or LPS, and there's others, other toxins from bacteria also. So any level of inflammation in the intestinal lining, such as happens when you have proliferation of stool microbes, <laughs> allows, it opens up the barriers, the so-called tight junctions between intestinal cells and the endotoxin is given free reign to enter your bloodstream. That's a major. Of course, we have other issues. We have a diet advocated by our own U.S. Department of Health and Human Services and USDA that is hugely inflammatory. When you cut fat, saturated fat, and eat more healthy whole grains, it is hugely inflammatory because the gliadin protein of wheat 
engineered by agribusiness scientists, is much more inflammatory than it used to be. Um, the wheat germaglutinin that farmers farmers select. Uh, I'm not blaming farmers. They're just trying to eke out a living, right? But they, they select strains of wheat that are more pest resistant and have higher levels of wheat germaglutinin because wheat germaglutinin is this protein that uh, kills pests like insects and some molds and fun fungi. So they selected strains of wheat that are much higher in wheat germaglutinin. Well, wheat germaglutinin is a very potent bowel toxin. And so modern strains of wheat are extremely toxic to the human GI tract. And of course, the amylopectin A component, the, the super carbohydrate of wheat and grains that raises blood sugar higher than table sugar, makes you grow visceral fat. That is the fat around your waist and that encircles your internal organs. That is extremely inflammatory. And uh, that furthers the whole process of inflammation in the body. And then, of course, modern life is filled with mistakes. Like we all wear clothes. And even when we're outside, we wear clothes. It covers a lot of the body surface area. Don't get exposed to the sun as much. Or we work indoors. Or we're aging and lose the, the capacity to activate vitamin D in the skin. And uh, we drink filtered water because you can't drink from the ocean, lake, river, or stream. It's got garbage in it. It's got sewage. It's got chemicals, farm runoff. So we filter our water. That removes all magnesium. So we compensate for those things also because uh, the, the lack of those things like vitamin D, magnesium, allows inflammation to develop. And so we, we live in a world where there's numerous uh, factors in uh, uh, amplifying, throwing gasoline on this fire of, of inflammation. Now we have, of course, this uh, very common situation of SIBO, 30 feet of microbes, and the free entry of endotoxin into the bloodstream. Huge factor in inflammation. Mm-hmm. All right. One more topic we've got to address is, because we've talked about some of the current conditions that we are exposed to, but even going back further than that, and you, are, this is one of the few books that highlight this so elegantly, which is we're coming into the world literally when we're born at a huge microbial disadvantage today. And you have different sections in the book. And one of them you talk about is formula for failure is one of the um, little kind of subtext that you have in the book. To say that something is average or normalized, is, it, this is anything but normal, but coming into the world under very unideal condi- conditions for microbial health. Can you talk about that, the, birth, the birthing process and especially the issue surrounding breast milk? Oh, big issues, Sean, you're exactly right. So unfortunately, moms have taken antibiotics themselves, may have taken birth control pills, maybe took uh, ibuprofen for menstrual uh, cramps. So they start, these poor ladies start with a massively disrupted microbiome. They deliver a child, uh, vaginally hopefully, uh, so that even if the child gets the vaginal microbiome, it's it's an impaired microbiome. And of course, mom is often given antibiotics for her episiotomy, certainly for her C-section. The child is almost always given antibiotics to prevent uh, beta streptococcal infection. And then, of course, children are dispensed antibiotics like crazy. It's, it's, uh, the CDC tells us that over 1,300 prescriptions for antibiotics are written for every 1,000 children every year. And so the child starts at a disadvantage. And of course, if mom chooses not to breastfeed for a little, <coughs> much time and relies on formula, formula is not even close. You know, the formula manufacturers tr- have been trying over the years to mimic the composition of breast milk, but they uh, really have lots of things wrong with formula feeding. Uh, 
And you know, I understand it's very difficult for a modern woman. She's got responsibilities. She has other children. She has a job, all kinds of pressures on her. But it, there is a real advantage to breast, breastfeeding. One of, the, uh, one of the greatest examples and illustration of just how wrong things have gone is the loss of Bifidobacteria infantis, a microbe very, very important to newborns and, and infants. So it's estimated that 90% of children now don't have this microbe. When you restore it, there's a product called Avivo, E-V-I-V-O. It's out of, the science comes out of UC Davis. Uh, I'm sorry, UC, um, yeah, Davis. Uh-huh. And uh, they showed that restoration of this microbe to a newborn causes the baby to be more likely to sleep through the night, less colic, less fussiness, um, fewer bowel movements, cuts number of bowel movements in half from an average of four per day to two per day, fewer diaper changes for mom and dad. And as an older child, uh, less asthma, less irritable bowel syndrome, less likely to become obese later on, and has a higher IQ. So, Sean, this one microbe has lifelong implications for the health of that person. And that's just one microbe. Now, the company tells you, of course, to, uh, that mom should express some breast milk, mix the, uh, the probiotic with it, and then feed it to the infant. I, I suggest that think about mom making the yogurt out of it. So recall that the reason we make yogurt or other fermented food, doesn't have to be dairy, is to increase microbial counts. Well, if mom doesn't have it, she can get high counts by making yogurt out of it before she delivers the child. And that way, when the baby passes through birth canal and breastfeeds, she's conveying this microbe the way it's supposed to happen. They can still, mom can still give the baby that probiotic, but uh, it's gotta be better when that micro is passed on in the context of mom's uh, uh, microbiome. And mom gets benefits from it too. Less inflammation, better mood, less anxiety. So mom, mom benefits also. Yeah, the, the business of being born today is, it's a business. And so much has been taken out of the, the power of, of parents and, and of mothers. Like we're coming into a situation, unfortunately this conversation isn't being had a lot about how much control you actually have. It's looked at as like a medical emergency, you know, whether it's the TV de- depictions or, you know, just people's experience, instead of looking at the, this is a process that humans have literally been doing forever. Now, of course, there's room for modern medicine and remarkable interventions to save lives, absolutely. But unfortunately, it's been leaned on very heavily. And oftentimes, as the data indicates, it's inappropriate. You know, so C-sections now, we're looking at about one in three childbirths today is via C-section. Like I, until I, you know, saw this statistic in your book, I hadn't looked at it in years. I saw that it was going up, but un, like it blew my mind because what's missing now is one of the most important inoculations or kind of immune system download even. And with the microbial exposure of a child being born vaginally and missing that critical like that that's the introduction to the world and again not to say and i i I want moms who've you know that are listening who've had c-sections this is not in any form or fashion taking away from that experience you had to you know do what you had to do at the time and you are so powerful you're a wonderful person a wonderful mom but you have power now to do some of these things to give our kids an advantage that we're often missing out on and part of that too if you could just mention again, so there's some critical implements in breast milk. So breast milk itself is providing important microbial information for babies as well, right? Mm-hmm. 
There's something called human milk oligosaccharides. These are um, the carbohydrates that mom passes on to the infant. They're very important, especially for neurological development. Well, if the child does not have that bifidobacteria infantis, it can't digest that those human milk oligosaccharides. Instead, it gets diarrhea from it and, so, and can't take advantage of the neurodevelopmental advantages of being able to digest human milk oligosaccharides. And of course, if mom uh, transitions to, to formula feeding, there is virtually no human milk oligosaccharides. There has been a company that's uh, actually managed to synthesize a couple of them. So they're, they're trying, but there's about 100 to 200 different forms of human milk oligosaccharide that occur naturally in human breast milk that so, so formula doesn't even come close to mimicking what uh, uh, a baby would get from. There's no immunoglobulins, for instance. There's, of course, no microbes. And so there's real problems with formula. So uh, formula can be a necessity for many moms, but you want to try your best to, to try to breastfeed that child as long as possible. Yeah. And you also talked about how marketing has kind of influenced, not kind of, but deeply influenced uh, mothers choosing to breastfeed for a short amount of time or even breastfeed at all. There was a big campaign done in Africa, for example, that, you know, this is the superior thing. The formulation, you know, this infant formula is better than, and for you to give your child the best advantage, breast milk is, isn't it. You need to give your kid this, this formula. And, you know, kind of looking at these nefarious activities, thankfully, again, the word is getting out and, you know, there's been a resurgence of respect for breast milk fortunately. But what I want to talk about now is, you know, even if we don't come in, and I know myself personally, I didn't come in with the best circumstances and advantages, you know, with my mom, for example. And, but this is the thing, no matter where you are right now, as a parent and as a person, there's room for improvement. And so let's talk about some of the solutions here. We know that, you know, obviously there's been a war that's been taking place within our bellies, right? Frankenbelly versus the, the, the townspeople. You know, it's pillaging and craziness and, you know. But what can we do? What are some of the action steps for us to all start to have a super gut? You know, I tell people, because this gets kind of overwhelming for some people, I tell them, pretend you're going to have a backyard garden in springtime. So how do you do that? Well, you prepare maybe a 10 by 10 piece of land, you pick out the twigs and the sticks and the rocks, and then you plant seeds, and then you water and fertilize it for the growing season. At the end of the growing season, you have lots of tomatoes and cucumbers and zucchini. Well, the microbiome is very similar to that. We're going to prepare the soil, meaning we get rid of things that were disrupting your microbiome. That, and that's a long list, so you do have to refer to lists. So try to get off the drugs, the prescription drugs that disrupt it. Uh, minimize your exposure to antibiotics, filter your drinking water, choose whenever possible for your budget and, and availability. Try to get uh, organic foods that are less likely to have herbicide, pesticide residues. Of course, never consume uh, genetically modified organism, uh, foods. Avoid processed foods that have long lists of ingredients because preservatives and emulsifying agents, for instance, disrupt the microbiome. So clean the soil up. Plant the seeds. Now, people often think that commercial probiotics are all they need. In this whole equation, Sean, the least important thing are commercial probiotics, at least in their current form, because they're mostly just haphazard collections, these slapdash mixtures of bacteria with no rhyme or reason to them. So they're not that helpful. They are helpful, but not that helpful. 
Much more important are those fermented foods, the kimchi's, kefirs, yogurts, fermented meats, and they're delicious and they're fun. It's almost no cost to make fermented. I, I have fermented veggies on my kitchen counter. They're delicious. They're wonderful. I look forward to them. So that, um, and then of course, uh, feed them water and fertilizer with, these are mostly the fibers, the pre so-called prebiotic fibers, as well as various polysaccharides and polyphenols. These are things in plants, mushrooms, onions, garlic, shallots, legumes, leeks, dandelion greens. Those are the things that feed your microbes. And because when you, when you bring order back into your microbiome and you feed them, it tends to cultivate the healthy species. Now, somebody says, oh, no, Sean, I tried that. I tried to eat legumes or, or uh, garlic, and I get a massive case of gas and bloating. Well, that's SIBO. So that can serve intolerance to either those fibers and those foods or to probiotics, especially in the first 60 to 90 minutes, tells you microbes are way up high in the GI tract. The problem is not the food. The problem is your microbiome. Mm. Wow. Wow. That's a, that's a shift in thinking right there. And so I guess it would, would diversity, would that be the order of the day? If we're wanting to diversify our microbiome, would we look to a diversity of plant fibers? Yeah, yes. Very good point, Sean. That's right. So a diverse intake of, so people sometimes make this mistake. Well, I'm too busy. So I bought some inulin powder and that's all I do. Well, that actually causes problems. So you want to vary your intake. You can use an inulin powder, but you also want to include some dandelion greens or some legumes, some white beans, black beans, kidney beans, uh, chickpeas, hummus, um, other vegetable sources, uh, mushrooms, a whole variety of, and, and as you point out, it cultivates diversity. As do fermented foods. They also cultivate diversity because you want to be like, <laughs> to some degree, the Hadza or the Yanomami, and have a greater number of diverse microbes. Awesome. Dr. Davis, this has been phenomenal. I love talking with you. And again, your book is incredible and it's essential right now. So can you let everybody know where they can pick up a copy of Super Thank Gut? You. Thank you very much, Sean. So of it's course. available just about anywhere they sell books, Barnes and Noble, Books a Million, Amazon, of course. Um, so you can't, you can't help but stumble on it if you, if you start looking. Awesome. Awesome. Well, I appreciate you so much. Thank you so much for being a light for all of us and, and doing the work that you're doing. It really does mean a lot. Thank you, Sean. And you likewise, you're doing great work. I'm, I'm glad awesome. you're so busy. <laughs> Thank you. I appreciate it. I receive it. Dr. William Davis, everybody. Thank you so much for tuning into the show today. I hope you got a lot of value out of this. This is one to share with everybody you know. And of course, you could take a screenshot of this episode, tag me, I'm at Sean Model, and tag Dr. William Davis on Instagram as well. And on Facebook, he's popping on Facebook. He's been popping on Facebook for quite some time. I'm at The Model Health Show on Facebook, at Sean Model on Instagram and Twitter. And of course, you can send us directly from the podcast app that you are listening on as well to a friend, family member, somebody who's interested in health and wellness, of course, but also people who are struggling with different issues and just need more high quality education. This subject matters a lot. The health of our gut is of the utmost importance today. So much of our health outcomes are literally rooted in our gut health. And uh, again, his book is wonderful. It's a great read. A uh, lot of funny stories and articulations. Brilliant guy as well. And one of my favorite teachers doing his thing. And 
We've got some more incredible teachers coming your way very soon and also some master classes we're going to be doing on a myriad of different health topics, important health topics. So make sure to stay tuned. Take care. Have an amazing day. I'll talk with you soon. And for more after the show, make sure to head over to themodelhealthshow.com. That's where you can find all of the show notes. You can find transcriptions, videos for each episode. And if you got a comment, you can leave me a comment there as well. And please make sure to head over to iTunes and leave us a rating to let everybody know that the show is awesome. And I appreciate that so much. And take care. I promise to keep giving you more powerful, empowering, great content to help you transform your life. Thanks for tuning in.